Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are venturing into the vault for an episode that originally published November 30th, 2017. This is an episode you did with Christian, right? This was the last episode I did with Christian, last episode Aww. of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Yeah, this was uh, his uh, his final episode. He got to pick the topic. He'd been wanting to do one on uh, on uh, the, the tree of life and the motif of the of the tree in uh, in human uh, uh, cultures around the world mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah so it was like his last episode he got to choose and and in doing so he kind of accidentally um, uh, made us do a Christmas episode because we end up talking <laughs> a little bit about uh, holiday trees, Christmas trees in this episode as well. Uh, thus, our rerunning of it of this episode during uh, the holiday season. You going to make people cry all over again for Christian's farewell? Well, c- cry if you must, but uh, yeah, we we were sad to see him go. It's your party. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I guess we should get right into the episode. We hope you enjoy the Tree of Life. Men call the Eswatha, the banyan tree, which hath its boughs beneath its roots above, the ever-holy tree, yea, for its leaves are green, and waving hymns which whisper truth. Who knows the Eswatha knows veds and all. Its branches shoot to heaven and sink to earth, even as the deeds of men which take their birth from qualities its silver sprays and blooms, and all the eager verdure of its girth leap to quick life at kiss of sun and air, as men's lives quicken to the tempting's fair of wooing sense, its hanging rootlets seek, the soil beneath helping to hold it there. As actions wrought amid this world of men bind them by ever-tightening bonds again. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager, and that was a reading from a book I can't pronounce the right way, but it's the Arnold translation, chapter 15. You say it. Yes, the Bhagavad Gita, or, you know, you can just call it the Gita. I Uh, always say it wrong. Yeah. Bhagavad Gita. Yeah, or just the Gita. You know, you can be impersonal with it if you like. Okay. But yeah, that's uh, the Arnold translation. Chapter 15, referring to one of the many world trees, the sacred trees, the trees of life that seem to crop up from cultures and traditions around the world. And the roots of these trees seem to dive down deep into human prehistory. Yeah, I have been thinking about this topic for a few years now. I've, I've had this in the back of my head when I joined the show. Uh, here's a little behind the scenes for you all. Uh, we have this huge uh, spreadsheet document that has all of our potential topics in it. And when I first joined the show, I probably put, I don't know, like 200 ideas into it. Yeah. And this was like one of the first ones I put in there because I was like, I know what Robert's into. I know what the show has covered before. I need the answer to this question. And the way I had framed it was, why are the Kundalini, Yggdrasil, and Sephiroth all so similar? And these are all uh, basically – and we're going to get into this. These are all representations of tree – of life symbology across the world, right? And it first struck me when I was reading these esoteric books about things like yoga and Norse myths and 
Kabbalistic mysticism. And then it occurred to me that these cosmological symbols, they're so similar despite the fact that the, the cultures that they come from are vastly different and very far away from one another. But I didn't originally think of them as trees per se. And now that we've sat down and we've done our homework for this episode, it's, it's pretty obvious that they're they're all trees. Yeah, and, and, if, you, and if you don't know what those, those three names were, you don't know these particular world trees by name, I – I feel like most people, you're probably connected with some culture or another that has a tree symbol within it. And even if you're completely, like somehow completely removed from uh, you know, ancient traditions and spiritual practices and religious history, you are still going to encounter the symbol of the tree somewhere in your world. And as, as with all symbols, symbols come into contact with each other uh, and you, you, you really can't interact with the symbol of the tree, I feel, without um, engaging with the legacy of that symbol, which we're going to discuss here today. Yeah, exactly. And so we're going to provide you with examples too. We'll, we'll get into all of those. But really our core question here today is why are trees so intimately connected with spiritual training and development everywhere in the world. And we'll find that this actually goes along with scientific development as well, that the tree symbology has been applied there too. Now, I have to note here, we could do whole episodes just uh, on all the various world trees and sacred trees in human tradition. We could do a whole episode just on tree spirits and the idea that the tree is a home for the soul of the departed. But obviously, we don't have time. We're going to try and at least dip our toes in in all the appropriate waters, but uh, we're not going to really have time to immerse ourselves. Yeah, this is one of those where you could do just like an entire podcast called Tree of Life. And it would be just every episode would be about a different one. Because the further we dug into this, the more obvious it was it was in every culture everybody yeah. has it and each one's fascinating each one has its own particular uh, you know flourishes uh, so yeah you could you could just have a tree of the week but unfortunately I won't be able to join you for that tree of the week uh, on stuff to blow your mind at least because this is my last episode of stuff to blow your mind I'm actually moving to Portland Oregon so if any of our listeners are out that way and you want to help me get situated as I move I would love your advice uh, so what we're going to do is at the end of this episode I will provide information on how to get in contact with me where you can find me online but I, I want to thank everybody out there all of you for accepting me into your ears for the last few years I've learned so much working on this show and interacting with its wonderful community and I've made so many friends from being on this show so thank you everybody And I wanted to choose a topic that was uh, something I really wanted to cover on this show, but that's also – it's universal, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, for for starters, I I want to thank you for everything you've done for the show and and you have helped to shape its voice over the the past uh, few years here. And uh, I wish you the absolute best. Uh, in Portland, and uh, and as we'll get into at the end of the show, also your 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 future podcast endeavors. Yeah, uh, you're going to remain a, a friend of stuff to blow your mind uh, going forward, and I want everybody to to, uh, to to be clear on that. Like like five years from now, I'm going to show up, and we're going to do uh, an episode on some kind of uh, paraphilia, and then uh, <laughs> we'll mix in uh, like the science of some kind of psychedelic drug into it. Right. Uh, on that note, I am glad that your final episode doesn't have to be. The zoophilia episode. Yeah. Uh, though that was one of the ones on kind of your stuff to blow your mind bucket list. It was my hit list. Yeah. 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 I, after the necrophilia episode, I was like, we got to do another paraphilia. And yeah. So I'm glad we got that out of the way as a. Uh, 
as uh, icky as it made us both feel <laughs> when we did it. You know, one of the other things I like here is that your last episode is kind of accidentally a Christmas episode or at least a Christmas yeah. tree episode because I found at least one source referring to the Christmas tree as as yet another symbol, as yet another uh, echo of this global tradition, which which uh, honestly I didn't even really think of. I guess it's just because the the Christmas tree is just so – it's kind of so overdone right. in Western tradition. And especially because we cut them down, right? But yeah, I hadn't thought of it either. Mm-hmm. And it's so obvious now that you point it out. Yeah, and this comes out uh, like somewhat at the beginning of December. So maybe this will be an appropriate uh, going into the holidays uh, episode for everybody to listen to and think about trees. Indeed. So some of you out there are probably wondering, what are you guys talking about? What is a tree of life? Well, A tree of life, it's a widespread archetype or motif that shows up in many human myths across the world. There seem to be two main forms that show up, the world tree and the tree of life. Sometimes it's called the cosmic tree or the tree of knowledge in symbology. But the first one is a tree that has a vertical center that binds together heaven and earth. And the second one is a tree that is the source of life at the horizontal center of the earth. And the concepts that are associated with it include life-giving force, eternal life, desire for heaven, and fertility. So if we look at the world tree one first, this is the vertical tradition. The tree extends between earth and heaven and is the connection between humans and the gods. And the base of the tree is where oracles and prophets perform their activities. Uh, But because the top of this tree reaches up into the heavens, it was seen as an entity that actually connected the three spheres of what most people thought of as existence, heaven, earth, and then underground, which would be the land of the dead in some cultures. Now, what I think is interesting about this is that you can easily compare it to the holy mountain in uh, in global traditions. But the, yeah. the mountain is a like a thing – this is not ge- geologically speaking, but speaking from like human perspective. The mountain is a thing that exists and is solid and is unchanging. But the tree is a thing that is obviously grown, um, which puts it more in keeping with – uh, for instance, the idea of um, of a Tower of Babel, the idea of like oh, a yeah. tower to reach the heavens, a false mountain, except that the tree is is, is authentic. And it also reminds me, of course, of, of space elevators, <laughs> a man-made uh, thing that is grown or built and used to reach uh, the heavenly realm or at least, you know, low Earth orbit. Yeah, those are all metaphors that have shown up in other cultures, not space elevators yet, <laughs> but we still have time. We can do like a the space elevator of life Uh, movie at some point. But you're right. uh, Mountains actually are interchangeable with trees in some of these symbolic legends. But I think that trees are usually the fallback because they grow and because of their cycle of fertility. Uh, But let's look at the horizontal tradition and see how that – I think that plays into that further. This is, again, the tree of life versus the world tree. So this version has the tree planted at the center of the world and usually it's protected by supernatural guardians. The tree is the source of fertility and life and we humans are actually descended from the tree. If it's cut down, the ability to reproduce in the world would cease to exist. And the tree is common in quest myths. So you see a lot of myths where like somebody has to go and get something. The tree is usually involved. So for example, Gilgamesh, he obtains the elixir of immortality after fighting the guards of the tree of life. 
And its fruit and sap are thought to bestow both knowledge and enlightenment. Now, in some variations, this is interesting. I only found this in a few. There are goats at the base of the tree, uh, and they are also worshipped and seen as symbolic of birth and fertility. That's interesting. I was looking through um, uh, the the writings of James Fraser, and he he made some connections there as well between antlered or horned animals uh, and the branches of trees. Well, it seems like the goat represents the ibex, which was once worshipped as an incarnation of human and herd fertility. So that would make sense. And the horn formations connecting together, that also makes sense. Uh, in other variations, though, instead of a goat, it's a dragon or a serpent. I guess dragons sometimes have horns, but serpents don't usually. Yeah, I mean, you do see dragons with horns or antlers in a lot of traditions. I mean, just kind of a, a reminder that the dragon is essentially a chimera. It's a, yeah. it's, it's a you know, it's a it's a creature created out out of pieces of all these other animals, including, uh, say, a deer or a goat. Right, and so these seem to symbolize the spirit of the earth, but the serpent is also an image for the quicksilvery sap that's within the tree huh. as well because of the way it moves. So that's interesting as well. Yeah, I had not realized that. Yeah, and obviously we'll get to this, but when we go, go to the Judeo-Christian version of this, obviously the serpent and the tree and the Garden of Eden, that all fits together, right? Now, I want to remind everybody about archetypes before we get into this because we're going to definitely throw that term around a lot. Uh, Robert and I have covered that in previous episodes. We did an episode on on just myth in general mm-hmm. and taking a look at myths across history. We also did an episode on the hero myth and we talked about archetypes and we, we specifically talked about Carl Gustav Jung in those episodes. Uh, but just to give you a primer, refresher, what have you, he was a psychoanalyst whose main theory was that archetypes reappear in the collective unconscious that all human societies share. And he saw this as a ancient universal mind that was common to all humans. It's like an ancestral memory uh, and explains why we had the same archetypes across different cultures. This is his answer to my question. Why, why is this, this symbology exactly the same in these cultures all around the world? Right. Uh, for instance, the hero, as we talked about in, in, in that previous episode, was one of the most prominent of these archetypes. Young posits that there's this deeper unconscious level that's going on that manifests itself as dreams or sometimes in more complex forms as myths or fairy tales. So this is – in his you know worldview and we'll cover some some more frameworks like this later on in the episode why these all connect together so the tree itself has been used since prehistoric humanity as a representation for the cosmos for god for fertility knowledge and eternal life in fact there are representations of it in prehistoric artistic productions that's pretty interesting i didn't i didn't realize that uh, we also find the tree in our conceptions of physical matter. So whether you're looking at vegetation or rivers or the circulation systems of animals, they're all uh, – we use terms from trees like branches for instance, right? Yeah. Uh, and the human brain in these networks actually resembles the tree's crown and the spinal cord is its trunk. So you can see why human beings would automatically gravitate towards this symbol. Yeah, the tree is just a like a natural – natural symbol, a natural metaphor for all of these other things we're encountering and it's it's complete. You can see it as a silhouette on a hill yeah. and then use it as a model, as kind of an externalization of cognitive.
recognition uh, to help you understand the rest of your world. Exactly. And they're obviously a symbol for the cycle of seasons, right? Like early humanity to now, we all know that trees cycle through seasons, blossom, fruit, decay, and then are reborn. This is seen as a reflection of the regenerative cycle of the cosmos itself. And trees then, because they have a longer lifespan than ours, they seem inexhaustible to us, right? Mm -hmm. It seems like they have this natural vigor that lasts forever. But that's just because they live longer than us. It's like uh, Ents in uh, Lord of the Rings. (laughs) There you go. So yeah. th- yet another world tree that we <laughs> we didn't add to the notes here today. Yeah, yeah. I also don't think we mentioned uh, Game of Thrones at all, but of course they have yeah. those uh, those spirit trees that the at least the people of the north use. The weirwood is that what yeah, it's called? Yeah, I believe so. With, yeah. the, with the faces of the children of the forest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now remember too that in this symbology, the fruit of these trees bestows both knowledge and eternal life. Right. So here's an example: the golden apples of Yggdrasil are said to be stored in Valhalla to restore the youthfulness of the gods. But, and this is, this pun is intended, what if it all stemmed from a psychotropic agent that was in trees in the original representation? So actually, ethnobotanists have been throwing theories around trying to figure this out for a while now. And uh, some of the examples that they looked at as possibilities were the fly, agaric, or the Syrian rue trees. But so far, they haven't been able to find a, a specific hallucinogenic plant that satisfactorily fits with the description of world trees. See, mm-hmm. I actually found out a way to work in uh, <laughs> psychedelics into my last episode. Well, you, you know, this does make me wonder, though, it's, uh, would it be necessary to be able to find like the, the, one, the one-to-one uh, example of like, here's a tree that produced a psychedelic fruit when yeah. it would be, seems like it would be just as likely that you have the symbol of the tree, but then there's this vast knowledge of these other plants in your environment that produce various medicinal or psychotropic effects. Yeah, I agree. I think that some of these researchers, what they're trying to do is pinpoint the origin place where the myth first started. And Mm -hmm. a lot of it – we'll get into this later, but a lot of it seems to point to the Middle East. So I think that's why they're looking at those particular trees. But you're right. I think that uh, as this uh, myth spread throughout cultures around the world, obviously various trees could influence it depending on what locations they're in. So let's get Christmassy again for a second. Um, I ran across this um, this article in Nature from 2000 by ecologist Geir Hestmark uh, titled Temptations of the Tree, a Perennial Image of Life, History, and Enlightenment. And, uh, and he did a wonderful job tying it all into Christmas. He says, at this time of year, many people the world over bring a Christmas tree into their living room to celebrate life. The tree is one of the most powerful images in human thought and worship, a feature of human environments from taiga to rainforest and a symbol of persistence, fertility, life, descent, destiny, purification, and strength, a vertical link between the earth and the heavens, a place to seek knowledge. Yeah. You know what? This is interesting, actually. Do do you and your family get a Christmas tree every year? We do. Yeah. I used to. In fact, my family, like my extended family, owned a Christmas tree farm in New Mm -hmm. England. So it was like part of the family, like business, you know. Um, And it's always sort of been in the back of my head that that's why we use Christmas trees. But you know what I mean? Like, as you were saying at the beginning, we in American culture at least don't really specifically think about the fertility stuff that's connected with it. It's more about the, I guess, like the holiday itself and the commercial. Well, you know, I was more inclined to to recognize the fertility aspects of it because it's like you're bringing an ever tree, an evergreen tree into your home during the winter and and there are all these various pagan connotations there. Yeah. But – 
for some reason, I never really thought about the whole bridge from earth to heaven, despite the fact that mo- in most traditions, you're putting a star or an angel, you know, wow, yeah. a, uh, a heavenly being on the very top of the tree. Like you couldn't have it – it couldn't be any more clear. It's so obvious yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. This tree re- is in your house reaching up and connecting your house to heaven. We actually have a ceramic tree now. We just mm-hmm. have like a little like one-foot tall ceramic tree. So maybe that's why I stopped thinking about <laughs> it. It doesn't reach to the heavens. What what does it mean that we put gifts under the tree if really like the the root system of the tree would be the underworld? Yeah, all of our gifts are from hell. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'll leave that one for the listeners to, to uh, figure out. All right. We, we should probably take a quick break. Yeah. And uh, when we get back, we will jump into some various global examples of the sacred tree, the tree of life, the holy tree, so that we can further ground this discussion. All right. We're back. So why don't we start with the example that is probably most obvious for many of our listeners, the Judean Christian tree. We were already kind of getting into it with the Christmas tree. That's right. Yeah, Western audiences are likely familiar with the trees of Eden uh, and the fall of man in the Bible. Humans uh, were denied the fruit of the tree of eternal life, but they ate of the tree of knowledge. Later in uh, Christianity, the God incarnate Jesus Christ dies upon an artificial tree of sorts, Mm. the cross. And uh, uh, in that essay that I was uh, referencing earlier, um, ecologist Geir Hesmark, he quotes uh, St. Justin uh, Martyr, who said uh, that the Lord, quote, reigned from the tree, meaning both the cross and the tree of life. So the two are kind of combined into one symbol. I never thought about that before, that the cross is a tree. Yeah. A dead tree. Weird. And wait, the crown of thorns, too. Well, yeah, yeah, you can definitely make that uh, that case as well. Huh. Now, outside of just the, the Christian tradition, in Jewish tradition, we have uh, uh, plenty of examples of this as well. The menorah, for example, symbolizes the expansion and illumination of consciousness in the image of the tree. Yeah, and obviously, as I mentioned earlier, the tree is represented in Christianity by the tree that's in the Garden of Eden. Interestingly, the Christian church interpretation seems to be one of the only ones that associates the tree with guilt and sin. Hmm. It became a loathsome, quote, tree of temptation only in Christian Europe. So that's kind of interesting as we go through our other examples here. You don't really see that. Yeah. Though, I mean, I guess you could make a case that like the the tree of knowledge and the the, the tree of of life – in Christian traditions, like they're they're not really vilified so much as yeah. like humans were unsuitable uh, consumers of either fruit. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. So this leads us to our second example, which is connected to Judaism, which is the Jewish mystical doctrine known as Kabbalah. This is one of the ones I mentioned at the top. Mm -hmm. The Sephiroth is another tree of life within Kabbalah that represents a theory of 10 creative forces that intervene between the divine and our world. Most people probably are familiar with the term Sephiroth from Final Fantasy VII. That's right. Uh, I believe that's the end boss. But if, if you if you have so much as looked up Kabbalah on Wikipedia uh, and even just glanced at it, you've probably seen this symbol. Like this is the probably you could say this is the chief symbol of yeah. the Kabbalah. Yeah, uh, the right side of the Sephiroth represents principles of unity, harmony, and benevolence. And this side is associated with masculinity. The left side is a side of power and strict justice. That is seen as the female side, and it represents the fearsome awe of God. Now, 
this is not me. This is from the literature. When unrestrained, the side, the feminine side gives rise to evil. So it's pretty obvious that there's some sexist and gendered uh, systems going on within Kabbalah even from the get-go. But I, I have to be honest that I don't know enough about Kabbalah other than that basic reading of it that uh, I can't comment any further on it. So if there's people out there that know it much better, maybe maybe it's not sexist. Maybe it makes sense. The, the way that it probably makes sense is because the middle column represents an ideal balance between mercy and justice. So it's a balancing between gender identities. Okay, a balance of, of feminine and masculine yeah. forces. Okay. And it recognizes that the universe itself could not survive without both of these. Uh, I looked at this paper by M. Dancy that came out in 2011 called Archetypes and the Spheres of the Tree of Life. It was published in the Scientific Journal of Humanistic Studies. And Dancy says, Kabbalists consider that by becoming more and more conscious of these archetypical forces, life may become a meaningful adventure based on increased consciousness and on the knowledge of the divine. Uh, and Dancy primarily in this paper is citing a book by Gareth Knight that's called A Practical Guide to Kabbalistic Symbolism. And it recommends the idea really of the Sephiroth here is training the mind through special techniques like meditation so that you can further understand the archetypes that are within this tree of life. So these realizations that come from meditating on this are important in Kabbalistic practice because it allows the significance of the ramification of those symbols to be better understood. The basic idea here is that by understanding the archetypes of the tree of life, we can better understand our own nature and then subsequently become better versions of ourselves. That sounds nice. Yeah. I don't know a ton about Kabbalism other than, you know, the connections it has obviously to some of the occult things that you and I have covered in the past. Uh, there's some interesting like overlap there. But also obviously it had like kind of a pop culture surge. What would you say in like the mid-2000s? Yeah, I think so. I think that was around the time that I picked up a really – a really well um, paginated Kabbalah book. Like I, I, ne I didn't have enough time to really get into it, uh, yeah. but I, I, I was leafing through it and I realized, wow, this, the, the layout in this book is just amazing. They do such a great job with the symbols and these little explanations of everything. But then uh, a friend's birthday came up, and we're like, "Oh crap, we need to get him something." Let's give him this book. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I haven't re <laughs> I haven't uh, picked that book back up again uh, yeah. from another story. Well, it seems like the celebrity that most people associate with this is Madonna, right? I believe that she was pretty heavily involved with with Kabbalism, but that's about the extent of my knowledge of it. It seems like though, when whenever I've read over these kind of very basic explanations of the symbology, mm -hmm. it's very similar to lots of other cultures. So it's it's not all that much mystic or occult in the sense of that it's different from other things. All right. So we've hit Christian and Jewish tradition. Uh, we should probably touch in on the Middle East and Islam. Yeah. So this example isn't necessarily Islamic in nature, but some people believe that the tree of life symbolism actually originated in the Middle East, maybe also Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Greece, so somewhere in that general area. Now, Giroft is an almost 14,000-square-kilometer area that's in southeastern Iran, and it had great influence on cultural developments of the third millennium BC in the Bronze Age. So this is seen as a potential area for where this actually all started out. Uh, today, Giroft is also the name for a city that is in the Kerman province of Iran. 
And in ancient Iranian religions, there is some evidence that cypress trees were considered divine because they were brought from heaven by Zarathustra. But the date tree is more commonly a symbol of fertility that is throughout both Egypt and Mesopotamia. So some of the first depictions of the tree of life seem to be either date trees or palm trees, but cypress trees are also associated with it. Uh, these are the things that are – these trees grow in, around in Afghanistan, so they're associated. And this is where that goat ibex symbology seems to come from as well. It's directly related to this area of the world. Uh, there's this uh, paper by Resgarad that came out this year. Uh, has this great overview of symbology in the Journal of History, Culture, and Art Research. And uh, they use this visual structure credibility and aesthetics to conduct an analytical and semantic survey of how trees and goat symbology is used in artwork from this particular region. It's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, this, all, this also reminds me uh, of our Zoophilia episode where we talk a little bit about, uh, about uh, humanity's closeness to nature and closeness to animals through most of its history. So it, it seems natural that you would look to animals and as you're thinking about yourself and your world, you use them as mirrors, you use yeah. them as symbols, and then of course you would look to trees in, in, as well, in much the same way that you know we would look to our the digits of our hands and feet and end up basing our number systems on those. So, um, yeah. I mean, I would imagine this is just I'm just going off the cuff here. This is mm-hmm. not the notes, but that if you're an early civilization, you're going to base your community around areas that have a ready water source and plenty of trees. Yeah. You know, for lots of reasons. Um, so, yeah, it seems logical that the tree would be the center of the community. All right. Let's look at a few other uh, areas of human tradition. Uh, so the ancient Egyptians held the acacia tree as sacred. The, the first couple, Isis and Osiris, are said to have emerged from it. And there are, there are various traditions of holy trees and spirit trees, at least in African traditions. This gets into this whole legacy of – of of trees being a place where the spirits of the dead reside, right. that people people transform into trees, uh, and sometimes you know trees transform into people. There's being there being this this uh, this strict link between the two. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get into Hinduism, uh, there, there are some wonderful examples here as well. So Hinduism has no singular creation story; it has many. Uh, there, there's there's no singular creation, but rather periodic cycles of creation, and uh, this is just one of innumerable universes in this uh, view of the cosmos. So in in our reality, the idea is that it all begins in a vast ocean. A serpent sleeps on its surface, Vishnu uh, sleeps in its coils, and a lotus sprouts from his navel, and within it is Brahma. And he's uh, urged to meditate on the nature of, uh, of his coming creation and finally splits the lotus into three forms, heaven, sky, and earth. Everything else stems from this. So while it's not a tree... Per se, we still see the growth of a plant as the means of explaining cosmic emergence. Mm -hmm. And then also Hinduism holds the uh, Ashvatha or the sacred fig as holy, which we referenced in the opening reading from the uh, Bhagavad Gita. Speaking of which, uh, that reading referenced the banyan tree. I think that's how you say banyan, banyan. Mm -hmm. That tree is the perfect representation of a sacred tree with cosmic principles because it has aerial roots that come down from its branches. I've never seen one of these. This sounds super cool. It comes, the the roots come down from the branches and then take root in the ground. So the appearance suggests that the tree is actually rooted in the heavens. That 
seems really interesting. And then I think that this is connected to Buddhism, right? Yeah, yeah. It's said that uh, Siddhartha Gautama uh, experienced enlightenment under the banyan or sometimes it's referred to as the Bodhi tree and uh, thus became the Shakyamuni Buddha, the, the, the often just referred to as Buddha. Okay. And you see this depicted in a lot of Buddhist uh, iconography and, uh, and, and sometimes just – like happenstance uh, too. The, for instance, if you've if anyone who's ever been to Thailand, if you go to the ruins of Ayutthaya, uh, there's this iconic uh, Buddha uh, head, a statue uh, head that has been overtaken by the roots of a tree. Oh, yeah, and, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, so tons of photos have been taken. Uh, I was going to say lots of symbolic connections there. Yeah. Now we've talked uh, a bit in the past about sacred plants in Chinese mythology, Chinese traditional medicine, folk traditions. We've also touched on Chinese cosmology and how there are a, a few different cosmic origin stories. But the Chinese definitely have a, a world tree or two. They, 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 have, uh, they actually have quite a few sacred trees. So I was reading about this in uh, Anne Burrell's Chinese Mythology, which, uh, again, I've referenced this, this text on the, the show before. It's just a, a wonderful book on Chinese mythology. And she, uh, she references uh, the Chianmu Sky Ladder. Uh, and uh, she says that uh, Chianmu literally means building tree. At any rate, it's situated at the center of the world, so centered that it produces neither shadow nor echo. It was created by the Yellow Emperor, and it grew into the sky, and having reached the impenetrable barrier of the heavens, it spreads across its expanse, and, quote, likewise above the barrier of the ends of the earth, creating gigantic coils in the sky and huge root tangles in the earth. Then the gods use this sky ladder to ascend and descend, and its trunk is purple, its blossoms black, and its fruit is yellow. Okay, so this is definitely a world tree. It's yeah. in that vertical tradition of going up to the heavens. Exactly. Now, you have other cosmic trees in Chinese tradition, including the Trinity Mulberry, the Search Tree, the Accord Tree. Uh, there's the Leaning Mulberry Tree, and this is where... The Ten Suns roosted in ancient times before uh, uh, the hero, you the archer, uh, shot the nine surplus suns down. That's one of the um, – sorry, remind me of this because we talked about it in a previous episode. Isn't you the archer one of those uh, like mythological iterations of the hero symbol? Yeah, yeah. So the, the idea here with this story is that there was a time when there were ten suns and it was just burning the earth up. You know, you couldn't have – the crops wouldn't grow. And then the heroic archer comes forth and he's able to shoot uh, the, the nine surplus suns out of the sky, leaving just one sun to to light and warm the world. Oh, wow. He would be perfect for the end of our uninhabitable Earth episode <laughs> that we just recorded. So once the Earth, uh, the sun starts turning into a red giant, he can just shoot it down. That's right. As long as he has one arrow left in the quiver, we're good, right? Yeah. Uh, in Chinese tradition, there's also the giant peach tree, which uh, also tangles against the barrier of heaven. Uh, the, the peaches uh, here, they provide uh, immortality to those who consume it. And it also serves as a bridge between realms. I have a, a quote here that uh, Beryl provides in her book. Uh, and this is, uh, this is from uh, an older Chinese text. In Sangsi, there is Tushou Mountain. On its summit is a huge peach tree. It twists and turns over 3,000 leagues. Among its branches on the northeast side are what is called goblin gates through which a myriad goblins pass. 
On top there are two gods. One is called Holy Shu. The other is called Yulu. These lords supervise and control the myriad goblins. Whenever a goblin does evil, they bind him with a reed rope and feed him to tigers. Then the Yellow Emperor devised a ritual ceremony so that they could expel the evildoer in due season. They set up large peachwood figurines and painted images of Holy Shu and Yulu and a tiger on gates and doors and hung reed ropes from them so as to harness the evil. So some of you probably sat up while you're listening to this and went, wait a minute, goblins? Yeah. <laughs> but it, it actually makes sense across cultures. So this is here's one of the amazing connections we're going to make, all right? So let's go from Chinese mythology to that section that Robert just read to us, right? Sounds a little Lord of the Ringsy, right? Yeah, yeah. Goblin gates, goblins spilling out of the uh, into, out of other realms onto ours, crawling down the world tree. Yeah, and then you take that. Imagine the little Indiana Jones uh, dotted line, and you're traveling across the world to Norris culture, and then we get the Yggdrasil tree that I mentioned at the top, and this is. Very Lord of the Rings. In fact, I would imagine that it probably inspired a lot of uh, uh, Tolkien's mythos, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, the idea here is in the 12th century, Icelandic scholar, poet, historian, and politician Snorri Sturluson wrote about Yggdrasil in his epic poem, The Ada. And Yggdrasil, a lot of you are probably familiar with this, like myself, mainly from Thor and Marvel Comics. <laughs> so the Thor movies are pretty big right now. And then in the comic books, really Stanley and Jack Kirby were just kind of like, hey, let's take this entire, entire culture's mythology and we'll just bastardize it and turn <laughs> these into superheroes uh, and make them talk like they're in a Shakespearean play. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's kind of that's how mythology works. You yeah. Know, take what came before and then you, uh, you repackage it for the current audience. Exactly. In the original Norris mythology, Yggdrasil is – also a bridge between all of the great realms of existence. In its middle is Asgard, but it also reaches the realms of frost giants and Niflheim, I think is how you say it, which is the underworld or the realm of the dead. Going off of my Marvel knowledge, not of the the research into Norse mythology, I think there's also uh, places where there are dwarves, there's like a dark elf place like there are different the nine realms that they reference that are connected to Yggdrasil have like different sort of D&D Lord of the Rings yeah. species that exist in each one now there are three sacred springs that are supposed to be beneath Yggdrasil the first is the spring of wisdom and knowledge the second is the well of destiny that's guarded by the Norns who are the sisters of fate uh, and the last is the river of life that carries the souls of the dead back to be reborn into their next incarnations so you can see Yggdrasil is both a world tree and a tree of life it's pretty interesting now Yggdrasil is one of those trees that has a serpent. Remember we were talking about how sometimes there's goats, sometimes there's dragons, sometimes there's serpents. Yggdrasil's serpent is Nidhogg, uh, and this is a serpent that gnaws away at its roots, but this serpent is kept at bay by an eagle that lives in its upper branches, and the eagle will come down occasionally and fight off the, fight off the serpent. The eagle itself is a symbol of the sun, again, coming right back to this Chinese mythology. So it's kind of fascinating to see this is a perfect example of how far away these cultures are from one another and yet how similar their archetypes are. Yeah, I mean it would be uh, it would be it would be unsettling if we didn't have all these additional reads and uh, um, and, and analyses to, to go off on. Yeah, so 
Uh, similar to this, and this is one I wish we had more time to get into, but unfortunately, you know, we're just – we've got too many trees. Really. <laughs> uh, there's the yox tree in the Mesoamerican world tree culture. It's very similar to others we've mentioned, especially these last two. And it's represented in these cultures as the seba tree, and its access connects the earth and the sky, and its roots go into the underworld, Zabalba. Now, the Zabalba thing – this is going to be our segue. We'll just talk real briefly about some pop culture examples. The one that immediately came to mind for me after Thor is Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain, which oh, yes. is about trees of life. And and they use the terminology for the Mesoamerican tree a lot in that. And don't forget Avatar. Uh, That's right. central world yeah. tree at the, the, the heart of that movie as well. Uh, you also see it in things like American Gods, obviously, because that's based on myths. But – uh, I've mentioned World of Warcraft on the show before. Uh, I remember there's a tree called Nordrasil in World of Warcraft that's like literally like a tree that you you go to and it has its own you know video game mythology surrounding mm-hmm. it. Uh, also, remember you were talking about space elevators at the beginning? Yeah. I hadn't thought of this before. The Dark Tower by Stephen King. The yeah. Dark Tower is a world tree. It it's is. It's just a variation yeah. on it. He kind of takes the – the idea of a false tree and makes it true again in a weird way, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, we see the iterations of the tree of life in a lot of pop culture. Obviously, uh, we can trace this back to Joseph Campbell, who we've talked about in our myth episodes before, uh, because it is a common archetype that he mentions in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is this book that just like every screenwriter under the sun since probably like the late 60s has been referencing. All right. Well, on that note, let's take one more break. And when we get back, uh, we'll we'll start teasing apart the, the, the psychology and even the science of this uh, fascination, this obsession with tree symbolism. All right, we're back. So we've done a pretty good job, I think, of showing just a lot of examples, like putting the evidence on the table. Look, there are all these world trees. They're very similar. They're all over the world. But what we haven't answered yet is why. Why, How is it that this happened? Well, one uh, explanation that comes to mind, and I've kind of been alluding to this uh, a lot already – it uh, has to do with bi- the biophilia hypothesis, which uh, listeners to the show, you may remember that uh, Joe and I did an episode on biophilia hypothesis uh, recently. It's a, a fascinating take on humanity's attachment to nature. It's the work of of uh, acclaimed American biologist Edward O. Wilson, a highly accomplished scientist and author of numerous books, wonderful author, including 1984's Biophilia, The Human Bond with Other Species, in which he defined biophilia – as humanity's innate tendency to focus on living things as opposed to inanimate things. In effect, he argued for an innate love of nature. He said, quote, The object of my reflection can be summarized by a single world, biophilia, which I will be so bold as to define as the innate tendency to focus on life and lifelike processes. Okay, so you can definitely see a connection here where, again, like all of these cultures are focusing on the lifelike processes that are around them and using this terminology to define both the immaterial and and the material things that are around them, right? Right. Now, when it comes to evidence for this hypothesis, and, and it remains a hypothesis, uh, there, there's various evidence that's presented, including uh, the universal appreciation for nature among human cultures, the symbolic use of nature in language, 
So, you know, think of all the times just during the course of your day that you compare your own behaviors and motivations or those around you to the actions of animals or plants. Yes. Yeah. A lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if you actually stopped yourself throughout the day or at least in my case, if I stopped myself throughout the day and realized how many times I use – uh, similes or metaphors just in my in my general conversation that are alluding to animal activities or, or natural activities. Yeah. yeah. And then also uh, uh, another bit of, uh, of, of supporting evidence is um, the, re- the spiritual reverence for nature across culture. So animist gods, sacred environmental uh, places, and sacred trees. So the idea here is that our attraction to the natural world is just hardwired into us. And so, of course, we build it into our uh, metaphoric and symbolic understanding of the world. Uh, it's pointed out uh, by Robert Sommer in Trees and Human Identity, and this is collected in Identity and the Natural Environment, the uh, Psychological Significance of Nature. Belief in sacred trees and tree spirits is a very ancient thing, entailing both the creation of people from trees, the transformation of people into trees. And uh, James G. Frazier, uh, he discusses numerous examples of this in his work as well, including uh, uh, the, I believe it is the Dyeri tribe of South Australia who regarded certain trees as their fathers transformed. Uh, some Filipino islanders also believe the souls of their forefathers reside in trees. Uh, these just to name a few. Uh, we see we see this legacy continue today, even in the form of of memory trees. You know, plant, yeah. planting a tree in rem, in remembrance of somebody who has died, and uh, and some of the psychological uh, factors uh, that are involved there. So I had one example, and I didn't know where to place this. This is the best spot I could find. Maybe it's a biophilia related example. Uh, it is actually thought that. The world tree tree of life symbology is why you find in graveyards and cemeteries ancient trees that are often used and they're often planted next to springs of water. Huh. So I wonder if that's related to this, the idea of uh, the spirits belonging to the trees. Well, you know, if you think of a, a large tree growing in a cemetery or graveyard, I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? The underworld, the place where yeah. the dead go, that is where the bodies are are literally laid to rest. It's providing sustenance to the tree. Yeah. And then and then you have the tree growing up into into the sky. I mm-hmm. mean it, it it makes it makes perfect sense. Now, there are various uh, additional ways to to tackle the symbol of the tree. And uh, I, I found a, a a number of uh, different examples here. We're going to roll through these and discuss these. Uh, and uh, at, at least some of these are pointed out by uh, by Richard Sommer and, and again in that work, Trees and Human Identity, which I highly recommend. So first of all, there's the Darwinian take on everything. The role of trees in uh, natural selection influence latent and manifest preferences. People as trees, past and present, uh, pr- preferences merge with self-image. I am what I like. I like what I am. Uh, and also, Darwin was a, a fan of trees as symbols of evolutionary process. Uh, he said in uh, 1859's The Origin of Species, I believe this simile largely speaks the truth. So when, when, if you've ever looked into um, natural selection, you've probably – or even just you know, flipped around and say a book on dinosaurs, you've probably encountered these, these trees, these essentially family trees – uh, of of how we think different species emerge from each other, and these are known as phylogenetic trees. And we're, we're st- so, so we're still using the tree as a way to understand who we are in the world. 
Yeah, this was the science angle that I was mentioning at the top of the episode, the mm-hmm. phylogenetic tree. Uh, it's used in the sciences as a representation of evolutionary relationships between all species on Earth. And, and one paper I downloaded actually was all about this software that's being built, these various tools to explore that representation that connects 800,000 to 2.2 million species together. The idea being that you're reproducing the phylogenetic classification scheme that describes evolutionary relationships, but you're using a tree as a map. Yeah, yeah. Now, that uh, that piece that I re- referenced earlier uh, by Gear Hestmark, Temptations of the Tree, uh, now he, he made an interesting uh, argument here. He said that phylogenetic trees have a rhetorical power that's hard to shake. Yeah, he reminds readers that ultimately these are only sketches of historical hypothesis uh, constructed from imperfect historical evidence. So they're not they're not set in stone or or set in wood rather uh, like the the living physical trees. There's almost kind of a a trap in referencing uh, something that has a sort of symbolic potency to it like that. That's interesting. Yeah, especially like uh, from my rhetorical background, like I could totally see somebody writing like a 200-page dissertation trying to pull that all apart and how it's used. Hmm, That's very interesting. And I wonder if you could trace how tree symbology is used in political rhetoric Hmm. as well. Uh, bringing it into sort of a more contemporary cultural point of view. Because it's interesting to think of of what the tree is doing, you know, because yeah. from a human perspective, at any given moment, a tree is, is a solid thing uh, reaching from earth in, into the sky. And yet at the same time, it is, it is, it is growing. It is reaching in a way that a, that a mountain is not. And when we're aware of it, like we know that a tree starts out small and grows larger, but it yeah. takes – takes place over the course of, of a lifetime or multiple lifetimes. Hmm. Well, And then on top of that, it's vulnerable too. A tree may be chopped down. A tree may be uh, blown down by the wind. Yeah, whereas a mountain would not. Right. Hopefully. No, I mean the, I mean, the mountain will grow over time. But yeah. I don't even know to what extent that was uh, – that, that's, that's not something I, I, I looked at in the research. But I'm not sure to what extent uh, ancient peoples were aware of, of erosion when right. it comes to mountains. Right, yeah. Well, all of this could potentially be explained by uh, another aspect that we've already mentioned here today. This is Jungian depth psychology. So the idea here of the archetypes and human collective uh, subconscious that I mentioned earlier, there are some people that argue the world tree itself actually has evolutionary origins, not phylogenetically, but as part of our collective unconscious. That it's Mm -hmm. like all of us have this kind of programmed into our minds. Yeah, we're thinking about numbers with our fingers and thinking about other aspects of the world with trees. Yeah. Outside of Jung's perspective, almost all world tree traditions seem to have levels to them. And I didn't really mention this too much, but some of the examples that I provided, so for instance, like the Sephiroth and Yggdrasil, they have variations of levels. These range between 8 and 22 throughout cultures. And they seem to represent specific states of consciousness. So Yggdrasil is, is, is the example I'll use here. It's composed of the nine worlds. I mentioned some of these earlier. When it's mapped out, Midgard, which is Earth, Earth's representation is at the center of the trunk. The wor- that's where we live. 
the arrangement of all the other worlds around it are north, south, east, and west on the tree. And those represent awareness and perception. But then there's worlds that are above Midgard, and those represent higher levels of consciousness, and worlds below Midgard that represent the unconscious mind. Now, just Hmm. going off script here for a second, that immediately calls to mind Freudian psychology, right? Mm -hmm. So id, ego, superego, that seems like Yggdrasil was representing all of that like thousands of years before Freud even put that to paper. Now, another take on all of this is the um, uh, phenomenological approach. This is the idea, and we've been talking about this already, is that uh, you, have, you have metaphors between the natural and the human world uh, here. We have you know, the roots, trunk, and the canopy of a tree, and these are mirroring the infernal or subterranean world, the earthly world, and the heavenly world. And uh, on top of that, you have people in society are covered by fruits or flowers that are growing within the tree. A tree provides a firsthand encounter with the world and our our place in it. This made me think back to uh, my last visit to Zoo Atlanta. Uh, oh yeah, you go all town. the time. Yeah, well, got, you're a regular. I have a the, kindergartner. They know you. Along. They know you probably <laughs> at the gates, right? Yeah. Well, they have a they have this one aviary section, and they have a ton of birds in there. Yeah. Uh, from different parts of the world, and there's a large tree in there, and the birds make their homes in different parts of the tree. Like there's, I think it's a scarlet. Uh, um, ibis that, uh, oh, that is in yeah. there and it only stays at the very top it's like some sort of it's like, like like a heavenly bird if we're thinking of this as a world tree yeah and, uh, uh, and others make their home in other portions of the tree i believe those ibises mm-hmm. are uh natural to trinidad and tobago because when i visited there geez almost 15 years ago mm-hmm. they were all around naturally and they did the same thing yeah there it's a beautiful bird so yeah. you, can, you can imagine what how how seeing things like that in nature would then also affect your interpretation of the tree and your use of the tree as a metaphor. Cool. Then according to Summer, there's also uh, the, the realm of uh, eco-psychology, which I I think sounds an awful lot like biophilia, and maybe there's, a, there's more connection there that I'm not aware of. Mm. Uh, he says, quote, beyond the individual self, there is an ecological self that is nurtured through contact with and concern for the natural environment. A person should feel at one with nature, and if these feelings are absent or distorted, a healing process is needed. So the tree kind of becomes a way to engage in that reconnection, like even even if you're in the middle of a city and uh, and 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 maybe there's not a nearby park just the symbol of the tree can sort of get in touch with that ecological biophilic legacy all of this the last two especially phenomenological approaches and eco-psychological approaches make me think of Cormac McCarthy's The Road because mm-hmm. the the idea i believe behind that book is that it's thematically about our ecosystem and the basically like our mistreatment of the ecosystem right yeah. and it's been a while since i've read that book it's super depressing but uh basically i remember a lot of descriptions of dead trees yeah, yeah, that's that, that is a great book, a, a pretty bleak book. I, I've yet to read it as a father, um, and I, I don't think I'm quite ready to do that. Yeah, that, <laughs> I can imagine that would be real tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly, I yeah, I now that now that you mention Cormac McCarthy and the World Tree, I wonder. Uh, he, he trees come up. I mean, trees come up in every work of fiction. Really, I mean, yeah. it's it's in the same. It's, it's kind of the the core argument here is that trees are such a part of our world. Uh, that they have become an inseparable part of our um, 
our symbolic understanding of ourselves and the universe and cosmology that it becomes this thing upon which we build our 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 boldest fantasies and our our darkest horrors so it's it it's one of those things where i feel like you could probably tease apart any work of literature and say uh, okay, here's my you know three ball volume study of trees in Cormac McCarthy or yeah. trees in the work of Shakespeare. I'm sure I'm sure someone has, has done oh, some yeah. of this. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of the reason why I wanted to end with this topic because it seems like it's so universal. We're heading into Christmas season, and it seems like we've found uh, no no pun intended a root for uh, <laughs> the origin of the Christmas tree, right? But uh, that it's just this thing that connects us all together, no matter what our religion or ethnicity or creeds, whatever, trees are important to us. Indeed. All right, Christian. Well, well, this was it then. This was, uh, this was your, your final episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. So again, I want to thank you for all that you've done uh, on this show, with this show, helping to grow this show over the past few years. Uh, I, we look forward to keeping in touch with you in the future. Can you tell our listeners where they can continue to uh, to listen to you, uh, to, to read your work uh, over the years ahead? Yeah, thank you. And thanks again for having me on the show the last couple of years. Uh, everyone out there, and, and this is Robert and Joe included, you can all reach me on Twitter at Christian Sager. Or if you want to email me, uh, for instance, about this episode – uh, you can email me at christian.sager at gmail.com. I will also continue to be hanging out in our Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module on Facebook, so you're not getting rid of me that easily. <laughs> I'll be interacting with the awesome community that we have over there. Uh, I may not be here on the show anymore, but I'm still going to be actively writing and podcasting online. And as Robert alluded to, I'm continuing to do my creator-owned podcast, Super Context. Some of you are familiar with this, but if you've never heard it before, uh, it's a podcast autopsy of media, how we consume it, and how it informs our everyday culture. In each episode, we try to understand the entertainment world we all live in, whether it's film, television, prose, music, or comic books. You can find it wherever you get podcasts, or you can get it at supercontext.libsyn.com. I'll also be publishing a goodbye post to stufftoblowyourmind.com that will also cover all of this stuff as where you can find me. And uh, I imagine that we'll have like cross links between the podcast uh, page and that blog page referencing back to both one another. That's right. And yeah, I recommend everyone check out Super Context. Uh, uh, even if you if you don't have time to listen to it when it comes out, uh, check out the artwork. The artwork is always amusing because <laughs> yeah. you, uh, you you do uh, custom artwork for each episode. I right? do, yeah. I, I hand draw. Well, it's uh, they're digitally, but I draw uh, the artwork for every episode and they're like weird little cartoons that are related to whatever the topic is. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, so th- this is thanks. This is goodbye. And uh, hey... The rest of you, you want to keep up with the Stuff to Blow Your Mind, make sure you follow us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the links to the various uh, social media platforms that we have, including Facebook, including the discussion module that we mentioned already. And if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, you, of course, can uh, email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. And, uh, yes, if, if you have something that is Christian-specific that you send to us, we will uh, try and forward that to him as uh, as well. Awesome. And I will do my best to reply. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 
Thank you.